You're listening to Partnernomics Podcast, where we discuss the art and science of developing successful strategic partnerships. To learn more about the suite of Partnernomics solutions, visit Partnernomics.com. Well, today we are joined by Brian Brewer, and uh, Brian is the founder of Check Six. Brian started Check Six in 2007, and uh, their organization has the mission of working with companies to help make them more effective and more profitable. And they do that specifically by using process, process improvement, and different technologies. So, Brian, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it, sir. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. It's a privilege to be with you. So Brian goes by Brew. That's his call sign. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, Brian's military experience because that that is the reason, I believe, that, that he started Check 6. So I'm going to be uh, referring to, to Brian as Brew or Mr. Brew. And uh, Brian, let's, let's start off by talking about uh, the call sign. Where did that come from? And tell us about uh, your career as a naval aviator, a fighter pilot, no less. Oh, my gosh. It was it was the greatest gift this country could have given me, and it was uh, it was born out of ignorance. And I found myself 123 miles from the North Pole in uh, 19 in the winter of 1985, and uh, had been up there in total darkness for a 30-day hitch, drilling the only well drilled to date up in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and. Uh, oil had plummeted down to six or seven dollars a barrel and we were burning through cash up there uh, poking this hole in the ground and i realized that the longevity of that job probably wasn't going to be there much longer and i was reading a san francisco newspaper that said get an office with a view navy officer programs and it had a pilot looking down on the flight deck of an aircraft carrier and it said college degree required and I started talking about the benefits and i'm going well, I've got one of those. So I called the phone number and the next, the rest they say is history and ended up with a, an amazing 21 year career flying fighters uh, off aircraft carriers. And then with the Air National Guard, the last five years of my service. And uh, it was just a remarkable journey and uh, kind of led the way for check six to start with. Cause the very first time I sat down in a fleet ready room and I just looked around to my left and right and front and back and saw the amazing talent that was in there. I wasn't sure what we'd get together to do, but I knew we could do darn near anything um, that was uh, legal and practical and, and, and do it as good or better than anybody else. And coincidentally, that's what we do at Check Six. We take what your tax dollars made us artisans, if not the world best at what we do, and apply it to the private sector. And it, it's measured in preservation of life and billions of dollars of efficiency and, and proud to be a part of it. So, Brew, with Check 6, um, you guys are in, I believe, 20, 20 plus countries working uh, with different organizations and very large organizations that uh, it's, it's life or death. Talk to us a little bit more kind of specifically about what Check 6 does and what does, I guess, a typical engagement, if you will, what does a typical engagement look like? Well, um, it, it, we tailor our, our methods to the needs of whatever our customer has, desires, or in some cases, they just don't know. They just want things to be better. And um, in the course of, uh, well, it's probably be best to refer back to how we how we came about even starting check six. I got a phone call one, one afternoon by a wonderful gentleman who's a 
a deep water drilling expert, and he was reading a white paper from a Dr. Rona Flynn, who's uh, uh, has a PhD in behavioral science. And at the time, she was at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, and and he had read her white paper that that said two interesting things. And at the time, they were talking about ultra deep water drilling operations that were testing the limits of both technology and as well as humans uh, operating that technology. And the bottom line is that the consequence of environmental and and uh, and the consequence on on human life for failure out there was just something that needed to be managed because no one really wanted to to deal with those issues after the fact and that Macondo incidents kind of bear some some you know the gravity of how those things can be but she basically this uh, Rona Flynn Dr. Flynn she came up and basically made two points she said if you're going to run those types of facilities dynamically positioned ultra deep water drilling vessels uh, she said to run it like an aircraft carrier, nuclear aircraft carrier. The second part of that was have fighter pilots and astronauts teach you how to do it. And in short order, uh, we were asked to put together a deployable training syllabus that uh, highlighted on, uh, on three basic things. One is leadership. The other one is process, which is vitally important. And then uh, the other one is organizational culture. Uh, that's one of, of rigid compliance and, and it fits basically the standards of high reliability organizations. Yeah. So, so that's, uh, that's kind of how we got started. And then with that uh, came the rigor and regimen of uh, various training syllabuses that, that we uh, were familiar with. The Top Gun syllabus not, not being a small part of that. The Air Wing training program was another part that uh, we took from the uh, uh, from the military sector and applied it to the uh, private sector here with the finest instructors in the world. And you got the, we got the exact results that we, we thought we would get. So you're the, the highest decorated naval fighter pilot since the Vietnam era. So it sounds like you definitely found your calling and, and you know what you're doing. It's, it's not very many times I've had the opportunity to speak with uh, with, with naval aviators, specifically fighter pilots, unless uh, it's back in the days when I was in the Marine Corps, uh, you know, calling fire missions. Uh, but then, you know, again, you don't have the chance to, to chat too much with them, but now I do, so I'm going to take advantage of it. Um, what, what is it like? Well, I guess, first question, what kind of aircraft did you fly or fly mostly? And then number two, what's it like uh, dropping down on, a, on an aircraft carrier? Well, there's uh, <laughs> two things. The, the, uh, I, I flew the F-14 uh, as my operational airplane in the Navy. I also flew F-18s, various variants of both of those aircraft. Uh, in the Air National Guard, when I separated out of the Navy, and I flew F-16s there. So both of them uh, strike attack bombers. The, the F-14 turned out to be the hardest dying airplane around because we started putting targeting pods and with a two crew cockpit and then the loiter time of fuel and, and the weapon complement you had, it was, it was quite a workhorse. Um, and plus it just looks good. <laughs> Be honest with you. So that's, uh, uh, that was, uh, where I did most of my work. Coincidentally, it was, uh, in, uh, 1999, I was flying off the USS Roosevelt in the Persian Gulf and, 
six years later at a place that I bombed while I was on the, on the aircraft carrier, we ended up living up this, this place, Balad Air Base, up in uh, uh, about 90 miles north of Baghdad. And so we were flying our jets with the Air Guard out of there. And uh, it was it was kind of an interesting time to do that. I could only imagine. I could only imagine. Yeah, an aircraft carrier, you, you, uh, daytime, it turns out to be quite a bit of fun. Um, nighttime never gets easy. And, uh, and when you think it is, that's when you end up scaring yourself. But um, uh, I, about half of my landings were at night. Uh, most of the operations I did in, uh, in conflicts were, were at night. We kind of had some technology and ability to do that and do it well and and then become practiced at it and we became really good at it so um anyway it was uh it it was a privilege to be a part of, of that war on terror and 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 pay a small small uh contribution towards towards that end so Bruce, i know that i i heard a gentleman talking actually he was a an, an aviator as well and he was talking about the importance of process, you know, just in general to military. And I definitely have an appreciation uh, for that, having uh, spent my small six years uh, with the military. But uh, he was talking about the checklist, the, the pre-flight checklist, and specifically how that really revolution, revolutionized the level of safety for aviators. And, uh, and, you know, just this evolution that's happened in safety, in process, in these different procedures and training that we have in the military. And I just think that's so genius that, uh, that you saw the need. And whenever you finished your military career, you stepped right into that and started providing that to corporations. Could you just talk to us in general about the importance of process and following process and the advantages that can come from that for organizations. Oh, it's 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 vitally important, and and I'll tell you tell you two comments, and there's certainly more to be talked about processes as you do uh, to great length in a lot of your 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 efforts there, Mark. Is that um, process to me the first part of it is it's a common language among professionals. Um, you know, ha the creation of processes is whole other conversation but when you come into an organizational unit being able to rapidly assimilate within those procedures as an individual as well as teams is what really allows more adaptability and flexibility rather than a, a layman point of view where it may say oh these things are too restrictive if they're too restrictive either people don't know what they are in order to to work within those processes efficiently um, or, or they're ill-defined uh, is kind of kind of what our uh, what my perspective is on that. So it, it's a way that process is how you're able to communicate amongst professionals. Um, those fire missions you talked about, we, we had a process for that. It was called a nine-line brief, and line one meant something, and it was also encrypted in a certain way. That and but in a in a real tough firefight you and i could communicate with just three of those nine lines in order to get the job done quicker the other six was just more better information that might help us survive or work closely together but you know it's those kind of processes that allows for rapid expeditious uh, accomplishment of tasking and whether it's in the military or in the private sector the private sector has a 
you know, it has a safety component to it, but it also has that profit motive component to it that at the end of the day, we have to be able to work within the means that we have and we have to deliver a result. And, and that result in many cases is bottom line dollars, or in some cases it could be to, um, you know, so, solve some loftier problem like a offshore blowout um, that's pouring 25,000 barrels a day into the Gulf of Mexico every single day. And okay, now game plan. So um, process is, uh, it, is, is vitally important. The second thing I'll say about that for me is quite personal because uh, I had the fortune or misfortune of crashing one of your, one of your airplanes. It was a TA-4J Skyhawk. It was a trainer jet, two seat front back type of uh, Vietnam legacy era attack airplane. Um, and on this particular day, the plane came apart. And so uh, ground impact was imminent. So we ejected out of this, out of this tumbling airplane. Uh, and in, in my case, uh, it was an inverted ejection. Um, I spoke with the engineers after I was in the hospital for two weeks. I had a broken back in two places. My right shoulder was sitting in the middle of my chest. Um, and coincidentally, I had a job as the, um, as the parach uh, parachute rigger shop um, officer. And, and my skipper did that for a little bit of leadership development. But we had a young man in there that was just a savant for detail, but his speed to accomplish the task kind of made him open for ridicule. And, and you know, as we all do, it's always the slow kids that gets prodded and poked and all that, you know, and really what it was, he was being bullied. Um, and so learning some lessons from my chief petty officer that teaches you how to be an officer, basically, um, we kind of came to a consensus on the team that we had to look at what people can do and what they can't do and everybody help each other out. Long story short, this guy that took about three times as long as anybody else uh, to pack chutes and repair ejection seats, this guy never made mistakes. His rejection rate was zero. He never had anything rejected after it was put through quality control. Well, guess That's what? somebody that you want packing your chute, right? <laughs> zero airs. It, it absolutely is. Well, in the course of this, where I was upside down and ejecting down, your ejection seat that you're in separates from you. Your parachute opens up. Well, the ejection seat came back down and hit me. And it didn't hit me. It hit my parachute assembly. It missed my head by how it could miss this big head. I don't know, but it did. And it went through a cross strap on my riser lines, and then the ejection seat went through my parachute. So I had a big old hole in my parachute coming down, ended up landing in a tree and shattered the tree. That's probably what kept me from, from dissipating enough energy to keep me from dying and stuff. But I want you to think about this for a second. The process that that sailor, that shipmate, that guy that saved my life, that's the value of process to me. Um, because when it comes into critical roles like that, you, you don't want somebody going, well, I think I did it right. And that's where checklists come into play. It's not, it's not something that tells you how to do the job. I could give you my checklist, but I'll bet you couldn't hop in an F-14 and fire it up. But it's, it's a tool that professionals use for a number of things. It's a cross-check for the human that's prone to make mistakes it, to get a process out of sequence. So it's an aid for that. And these digital ones that we have now, 
um, it's a training aid as well, because if you can't remember the first time, you can dial down and look at a YouTube video to show you what it's supposed to look like. So all of these things are dealing with humans from the standpoint of we know we're going to make mistakes. We knew it when we were flying fighters. We knew it when we were putting people on the moon. And all of this is a level of discipline that has a, that trifecta of leadership component, a process component, and a cultural component that when you have all three of those firing on all cylinders, look out because you're going to be better, quicker, faster, funnier, safer, and certainly more profitable than anybody in your neighborhood. Yeah, Brianna, whenever we had chatted last time, you had talked a lot about culture and the importance of culture and specifically the debrief culture. I'd love for you to talk to us about the importance of debrief and, and definitely in the military, we understand uh, about that. Right. Well, well it's, it, you bring up a good point. We talked a little bit about the creation of processes and so forth. Usually processes come out, out of, you know, a, not any number of reasons, but basically it, it starts out with somebody going, why do we keep doing, having to reinvent this wheel every single time? when we could sit down and lay out a process that's repeatable and it's easier to teach because it's founded on process and not personality. We see this a lot in, in, in businesses, especially family owned businesses that have evolved into these amazing institutions, but they're heavily reliant on the 30, 40 year uh, veteran out there that has all that knowledge in their head, but it's such a, uh, a, flesh wound when they when they depart because all that intelligence goes out and when we transfer that to processes it solves an awful lot of problems especially if there's any kind of turnover or we have a training challenge in order to get everybody up to speed so that we're predictable with what we do and the debrief is the catalyst to do that so something doesn't go wrong let's debrief it out of the debrief comes, you know, if we standardize this process, it's repeatable and simple, we could probably be a lot more effective. And that's the, that's the first part that comes out of a debrief is, is identification of issues that, that if we fix them, it's all one more step in continuous improvement. And that debrief culture is, is one that nobody wakes up in the morning and, and says, by God, I'm going to go debrief today. It's a, it isn't. I mean, when you were in the Marine Corps, that didn't happen that way. You were taught that, and it is. It's a discipline, and it requires discipline, and it also requires leadership. And, uh, but it's, it's absolutely that part when I said billions of dollars of efficiency. Well, that's where it comes from, and it's also the biggest solution to the gap in Lean and Six Sigma, which is frontline feedback because um, there's a lot of solutions out there for the people on the front line. So This is a continuous process improvement, right? I mean, Deming's work, we, we've studied it for decades and decades, but I want to make sure that we don't kind of blow by a very, very important point that you made, and that is build your business based upon processes, not on people. Because people always change, they always move into new roles, they retire, they go take a new job. And whenever we have that quote unquote tribal knowledge, if it hits the door when our people leave, man, that, me that leaves us very, very vulnerable. And, and that's exactly what we have constructed at Partnernomics is this playbook, this process playbook 
of how to more effectively build and nurture, develop partnerships, but have it be process-based and not be reliant on just having a rock star that knows it all. But whenever that rock star leaves, then it leaves you in a very, very vulnerable position. Well, it, it does. And you bring up a really good point is when you have uh, complex or, or challenging arrangements between multiple parties that are attempting to accomplish something. And that could be drilling a well that you may have 20 different subcontractors that all have to work harmoniously together, which, which is a, it's a big leap of hope when it comes to that. But when we get deliberate about making that happen, that's when we um, apply process. And, and as I said earlier, that process is kind of the common language between professionals. And the idea is when you put these, you partner with somebody, you want to be on the same sheet of music as quick as you can. It's a race towards integration of, of human capital as well as, as, as technology. And so how can we expedite that? Well, it's this um, preoccupation with failure and the transparency that goes with that from high reliability organizations. Best way to do that is to have a debrief where we're talking about what we're doing, not necessarily who's doing it. You know, it's not Bob over there doing it. This is one of our people that's been trained in something and they're exercising a procedure, maybe a standard operating procedure, may not be, whatever the, whatever the case may be. And, and, uh, and that uh, the debrief on that amongst those parties even if it's 80%, so you don't have everybody that you had it, but it's a planned activity so that you grab the most amount of learning out of each and each individual activity that comes comes along down there. And you're critiquing the process. That's where you get the input to improve processes or to just scrub them and go, that didn't work and let's just start over. Um, but usually it's tweaking a little bit here, a little bit there. And the next thing you know, it's, it's a living, breathing culture of its own of self-improvement that's driven by this, this professionalism among peers. Because over time, nobody's moving any faster. It's just we're doing it once. And if we're doing it once, that means we're going to the next step quicker and there's no rework involved in it, that case may be. In the military, maybe have to go and address a target again and who wants to do that? Um, and in construction, it may be have to be a teardown and start over again on the, on the foundation to get the thing right. So all of these things have consequences to it. We just found these processes with a little bit of leadership in there. And I'm not just talking at the top. I'm talking about these skills amongst, amongst peers, subordinates, and superiors alike. Um, and all of those things are addressed. The interpersonal stuff, um, it's skills amongst, amongst professionals is is addressed in a debrief because you get feedback on how you briefed it. Uh, in, input on planning. How could we have done that better, quicker, faster, funnier? So um, anyway, I got down that road a while. That'll teach you, Mark. <laughs> Brew, I'd like for you to chat with us a little bit about partnering and partnerships and what Check 6 has done. I know you guys done a lot of work in mining and rail and transportation and and uh, energy, a lot of different industries that you guys work in. But just talk to us about uh, the importance of, of partnerships and building relationships over the last 13 plus years with your company. Well, it's, it, it, it's really been a fun, uh, a fun way to go because obviously all of us 
um, that have been in the industrial complex have seen uh, how acquisitions work of, of technology, the implementation of technology, and some of these things. In a lot of cases, it's, my God, if I ever see something implemented like we had in the military from time to time, we go, we, we certainly don't want to do it that way. Um, so from that standpoint, you see a lot of things that worked well, but you also see a lot of things that didn't work well that translates very easily into the, uh, the private sector on things like what not to do. I mean, that, that sometimes that's as important as anything else. Um, but the partnering we've done has been some interesting things. We, um, we evolved uh, some moderate fidelity simulator technology uh, that was for the F-35 uh, Joint Strike Fighter pilot training aid at one point, and modified that into a crane simulator that ultimately got evolved into a well control simulator that had no human involvement with it. It was a virtual instructor that would put you through 10 to 15 minute segments on uh, doing challenging things like killing a well that was about to blow out and what to do. And, and the result of that has been very short tenure people that have been put in responsible positions of managing uh, well drilling operations with a very little, very little time in that, in that role, only to have a kick take, take place. And they responded to it like that. And it was a non-event. And you know what it's like when things blow out, oil gets on the ground or fires erupt or somebody gets killed. You know, those are things that make the news and they have a really, uh, they have bad consequences to everybody and for good reason. But it's, it was really cool helping to develop and evolve this technology that we know has saved lives uh, and made professionals even more professional in their ability to deliver on that. So that, that, that's one of them. Another one is digital checklist technology that we've, we've, we've come up with that is that when we show people some of these things, they turn around and then they find even cooler things to do with them. One of them was a, a department, a department of transportation checklist and, and truckers are supposed to do it and they're in various forms, but how do you really know if they do it? Well, this digital checklist allows you to do that. And what came out of this one manufacturing company that was overridden by, I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars of DOT fines because you're a target of lawyers and you're a target of, of the police and, and, uh, and for compliance on that because uh, there's so many infractions of it. Um, but it took, it, when they did this checklist and could verify that they, they, they did it, their um, infraction rate went to zero. I mean, if you did a checklist, you didn't get pulled over. And that was a lot of money for that company. But then what did they do with that? Well, they figured out they added one more thing on there, which is tire tread depth. And, and now they can predict when they need to change tires. They don't have to maintain a big inventory warehouse or any of that stuff. They get uh, basically manufacturing flow just in sequence uh, tire stuff. So that, that's some of it. And then the, the, uh, the other thing is in the healthcare industry. Um, we're looking, uh, looks like we're going to be able to make a big difference in verifiable compliance. So reimbursement rates to hospitals, um, are what they're hoping that they are because they can verify certain compliance measures that, that, uh, in some cases would restrict the reimbursable that they might get back. Um, and then some years ago we did, uh, 
study with the University of Oklahoma uh, College of Emergency Medicine for intubation, and they came up with some very interesting facts of, of uh, emergency teams that were, were providing an airway through intubation. If they used a checklist as a team doing it, they could establish that airway in half the time of practicing medicine, which was a, a single leader that was directing everything as opposed to uh, checklist utilization. So that's, that's certainly some of them. And then people find out that what our skill sets are and they're numerous. And next thing you know, people find out things to deploy us to make, uh, make cool things happen. Like you said, I mean, whether it's a trucking company figuring out how to save millions of dollars or it's hospital systems figuring out how to save dozens or hundreds of lives, you know, each year, it's, it's big stuff. It's big stuff. Um, Brew, I want to ask you, what kind of advice would you give to a leader that's moved into a new company, taken over this new team, and come to find out there is no playbook? There is no playbook to follow. Where, where should they start? You know, it's interesting you ask that because there's two things with that, and all of them have the same outcome. Either there's no playbook or they have a playbook, but nobody knows what's in it. And and both of them deal with, with uh, you know, has an ignorance part. Doesn't mean anybody is lacking, you know, skills between the ears. It's just if you don't know, you don't know. Um, but the the very first thing to do is kind of, kind of define what alligator's closest to the canoe and then debrief where your current situation is and where you want to be. And out of that, you're going to get some initial ideas on where to start is establishing process. And the, the thing to keep in mind is that you want to start an 80% solution is good enough and then test drive it, but be very forward-leaning and adapting and improving on those processes. Many times people get wrapped around the axle. It's got to be perfect. It's got to be perfect. Well, we all hope it's perfect. But at the end of the day, and it's one of those things of uh, um, high reliability operations being sensitive to operations. If, if all we had to do all day long was contemplate instead of do, that would be a different story. But we got to get to the doing part. So, um, you know, you bring in, uh, you debrief it, you identify those things and pick out things that are bite-sized that you can do in a week. And you build on those things and have the persistence and tenaciousness and the leadership component, remember that part up there, and then be affecting that leadership within everybody below by, you know, the culture in which how you interact with those people. Um, obviously get them bought in on what they're doing, but have them realize they're responsible for for establishing a process they themselves are going to use. So um, it's kind of one of those things where you, instead of a top-down direction approach, you maximize all the resources around you uh, for and, and, and give deference to expertise and, and task them, empower them to come up with what those processes are to start with. And then, you know, it's always a leadership part in there where you have to put boundaries or, you know, whether it's fiscal or practicality and, and with you do that. But that's basically the first thing. Debrief it, identify what those things are, keep it, empower the people beneath you, give guidance on what you think the priority is on it, but keep an open mind and be the last, uh, be the last one to talk and the first one to listen. 
Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that about uh, that 80% is good enough. And, and as, a, as a kickoff point, or just to view it as this iterative process, right? We talked about a continuous improvement. And we get that through that feedback loop, like you talked about with debriefs. But man, I can't tell you how many times whenever I'm helping companies set up new processes and they're going to wait by God until it's perfect the first time. <laughs> no. That is not the right approach. It's, it's continually being 80% right. And next thing you know, a year, two years, three years down the road, you are exponentially better off than you would have been otherwise. So I'm, I'm really glad that you said that. Well, Brew, I'm going to uh, wrap things up by asking you one last question, uh, sir. If you, yes, could sir. Turn, if you could turn back time and go back and talk to that 25-year-old Brew, what kind of advice would you give him? Boy, that is a really, really good question. Probably, probably be very similar to the uh, um, the answer I gave gave a little bit ago. I would have uh, I would have listened more, and I would have uh, sought out people that had been successful, but at the same time had been through adversity. Um, you know, my my journey through through business and, and consulting and, and putting together teams and so forth like that is, is uh, um, you, you know, it's not an easy road to hoe. You have a lot of uh, variables that you have to balance on any given day, not the least of which are humans, which all of us are different and wonderfully so I might add, but, but you know, all of that has, has issues that have to be overcome. And then you throw in, examples of incredible growth or with this COVID thing where we, we all just get shut down and it makes it, makes it very challenging, uh, you know, on a personal note uh, with the people around you that you love and care for and, and then the circumstances and the reality that you have to deal with. But as far as what would I, what would I tell myself uh, back then? It would, it would probably be that. And, uh, um, probably soften my Norwegian stubbornness just a little bit. <laughs> well, that sounds like awesome advice. Brew, thank you for your service. Thank you for helping to keep this uh, awesome, wonderful country free. And thank you for your time and sharing your insights. It's going to be fun watching Check Six and watch you continue to grow the business. Uh, well, thank you very much, Mark. Real privilege to talk to you today and look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, sir. Partnernomics podcast is brought to you by Partnernomics. Learn how to leverage the power of partnership. To listen to more episodes of Partnernomics Podcast, visit Partnernomics.com.